This is Rabbi Josh Uter of the Stanton Street Shul. Thank you for downloading this class podcast. These classes are provided free of charge through the generosity of the Stanton Street Shul community and supporters like you. If you do enjoy them, please consider making a donation to our synagogue's building fund on our website's shop donate page at www.stantonstshul.com. Good morning. It is Sunday, June 2nd, 2013. It's been a while since we've had a class and halakhic process. A whole bunch of things have come up, including Shavuot through schedule out of whack. Um, based on where we are now, um, I don't know if we can really progress historically, if that would make as much sense. Um, because where we last left off a few weeks ago was we introduced the Ba'alei Tosafot and I sort of focused on them as a shift in halachic thinking, even though they probably weren't the originators. But they did mark at least, they were good, how to put this, in terms of influence on contemporary halacha, the Ba'ali Tosavot probably wield a lot more influence than the Ge'onim. Because even if they're doing things that the Ge'onim did, most halacha today doesn't go back to Ge'onim. It's very rare that people will go back to Ge'onim. It would sooner go back to at least the Ba'alei Tosafot, or if not the Ba'alei Tosafot themselves, the tradition that the Ba'alei Tosafot advocated, or at least you know, their approach. And we focus specifically on the main difference between the Ba'alei Tosafot uh, and Rambam, where, whereas Rambam really focused on law at the expense of culture, we saw that the Ba'alei Tosafot had a greater tendency to um, place a priority over popular practice or inherited custom than they did over uh, established or text-based law that you'd find in straight Gemara. I'm very careful to say that because we saw conflicting sources amongst Ba'alei Tosafot, which doesn't imply contradiction, because the Ba'alei Tosafot were several dozen rabbis over, you know, quite a few generations. So you don't, you, you can't really expect every single individual to agree and say the exact same thing. Whereas Rambam is one individual, you would hope to expect some consistency from one person. Over a school, you can find variances of opinion. And within the Ba'alei Tosafot uh, sources that we saw, some sources seemed to follow Rambam in that they believed, uh, certain sources, I don't say believed as much as implied a legal tradition where things had to be legislated, things had to be overturned. And we also saw sources where they said, well, even though the text says one thing, we don't do it because of blah, blah, blah or some appeal to what they call the minhag hakidumin, this older custom that they um, try to at least justify, rationalize, or provide some sort of reason to explain, here's why we do what we do, even though it goes against the technical law or the outcome of the Gemara, whereas Rambam was fine saying, yeah, even though people do it this way, you're all wrong. Uh, you may recall the language from God knows how long ago he did this when uh, over the discussion of standing uh, for the Aserite Dibrod, standing for the Ten Commandments, one argument that was given was they do it in Baghdad. And Rambam said, that's not a proof at all, because if we found sick people in Baghdad, we wouldn't make ourselves sick so we should be like them. We should rather try to heal them to the best of our ability. Meaning the fact that people do something or did it for a long period of time for Rambam was negligible. You reject that outright. For certain sources in the Ba'ali Tosafot, it seemed, no, the fact that 
it's been done for a while, is itself a source of Jewish law. And we showed also how that itself was a deviation, at least, from Talmudic law. That aside, okay. Once you start going down the line, it's much harder to now start, you know, go. I mean, I understand, like, that sort of sets up a bit of a dichotomy, but it's an important dichotomy, even though it it seems artificial, like, not artificial, too simplistic. Uh, You've got one side versus another side, and there's a whole lot of nuance there. But the problem is, any nuance that you have from sources past the Baalito Safot invariably will get you into questions of authority. Why should you care about certain sources? Why should you care about these people? When, let's say, Ramban quotes certain Gemars, why should you take Ramban seriously? And these go to questions of authority. And eventually you're going to get back to, well, these were somehow accepted. But what does it mean to be accepted? And you know, these are questions that we've already discussed. From what does it mean from the Gemara? And we've seen that it means something different for the Baalito Safot, or at least some of them. I'm more of inclined to... Uh, favor those people that agree with my preferences. Right. Well, unfortunately, so you say that, and the truth is, you know, what would make your preferences different than any other preferences? Uh, to give an, uh, an immediate example, um, let's, let's say one guy says that he doesn't believe in an, an Arab, and I feel that uh, I'd rather benefit from an Arab than uh, have to feel like well, I'm not uh, You know, I'll take that in another direction too, like using ear specifically. Many of the the Arabin that we have today uh, don't fit the criteria established by the Gemara. So who cares? So you say who cares? Yeah. Now, why do people, Orthodox Jews, do it? Usually it gets reduced to our rabbis say it's okay, or our tradition says it's okay, and our community holds by it. Fine. I counter with the argument. Let's say I'm a conservative Jew. My rabbi says it's okay, my tradition says it's okay, and my community does it. If those are your ultimate, at some point, you need to have an ultimate criteria of how you determine Jewish law, and that's going to supersede everything, right? And at some point, you're going to have to sit down, work it through, and find what exactly is that point that's the real determinant that will supersede all other factors and criteria, and that's your real halachic system. This past week when I gave a class on women's head covering, uh, one of the things in the Mishnah that uh, is discussed in addition to women's head covering, where the Mishnah says that uh, violates dot Yehudit, Jew, the practice of Jewish women, in um, uh, contrast to dot Moshe, which is the law of Moshe, which refers to specific biblical laws, uh, and if a woman violates it, she, it's grounds for divorce and she loses the ketubah. Okay. One of the things mentioned is cursing out her in-laws in front of him, uh, uh, her husband. And I mentioned that there's no mitzvah to honor your in-laws. Said so it's a really good idea. I mean, I've never been married. My understanding is it's better to be on good terms with your in-laws than not good terms with in-laws. Someone listened to the class and pointed out that Shulchan Aruch says there's a mitzvah on your in-laws. You know, and trace it back is like, it's very nice, but he gets it from, you know, he cites it in Beit Yitz, elaborate in the Beit Yosef, gets it from someone called the Orchaz Chaim, but it's neither a mitzvah to a right or a mitzvah to a rabbanan. It's neither a biblical commandment or a rabbinic commandment. So it's very nice that Shochan Aruch says it's a mitzvah, but are you now telling me that, the, and if you want to use that term mitzvah, are you then implying that the Shochan Aruch has the authority to invent new mitzvot? And if you say yes, justify, where did he get that authority from? 
And what is, and again, you have to start asking all of these questions. What gives the Shulchan Aruch any authority to say, well, he thought so, which is one example. Uh, by example, I mean things that I've, you know, when I've posed this argument to people, I apologize for not finding, normally I try and finding things in print, so you'll have to trust me that these are conversations I've had. Like, you know, well, why do Tosfo, you know, feel they can go against the Well, clearly they thought they could, which means that the definition of what you can do to violate Gemara is hubris. As long as you think you're big enough, that's all you need. Assuming that, you know, taking it to the logical conclusion. If it's a matter of, well, the Jewish people accepted it, well, then effectively you're determining halacha by what Jews do, as opposed to what any law says. So if Jews en masse, not unlike Reconstructionism, which is why I've said in the past, you know, it's th- there's a reason why... Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say that the Bali Tosafot were conservative Jews as much as conservative Jews came out of an Ash, uh, were Ashkenazim. And they followed the traditions of Ashkenazi culture, or Ashkenazi uh, legal culture, at least legal approach, to another conclusion. And Mordechai Kaplan took it even a step further. And he got rid of the whole guy's like, what are we doing? Like, you know, if you're just going to define it based on what Jews do, then really Judaism is nothing more than a civilization. It's not a religion at all, because if what popular practice can, in fact, supersede the law, well, then that's your determinant factor. Yeah. So so two questions. First of all, uh, that was my original question was, how does the Committee on Law and Standards <coughs> differ from the Tosafot? Really good question there. Yeah. And I would I, my understanding is they don't see there's a difference. At some point, we may actually get to, we may actually, you know what, the, it, uh, one good topic to do would be the text of Emmet Umunah, which was written by Robert Gordas. Um, I believe it was written by Robert Gordas. And it goes through, like, it's a little pamphlet about conservative Judaism's approach, but that's exactly what they would say. Um, and why it's called, I mean, t- uh, we'll probably need a class on conservative Judaism altogether, and I'll explain, like, how that fits in with the overall direction. Uh, but I've always called it a tautology, because... Conservative Judaism officially believes in tradition and change, but doesn't really define how either one works, which means they can never be wrong. Any mitzvah that they keep, oh, we're following tradition. Anything that they decide to change or adapt, well, we're following a longstanding tradition of adapting to our times. So basically, if you can imagine, like, conservative Judaism is this bubble but the shape and the dimensions of the bubble keep changing. But it's always going to be conservative Judaism, and you can say, well, it's staying true to itself by constantly evolving. Um, and they've had trouble pegging down what is conservative Judaism, and multiple times they've asked this question, like decades apart, well, what is it that we stand for? And unless you're willing to like hold down to a real firm set of laws, you're going to run into these sorts of problems at one point or another. And maybe it'll be... Um, uh, like really a matter of identification because it's really cutting at the core of everything that you believe or it's going to be like an internal partisan fight and you see a bit of that going on in modern orthodox or not modern orthodox but in orthodox Judaism what is considered orthodox and who gets to determine that which is why I want to you know shift this idea of halachic process into more of a critical terms thing um, by which I mean Instead of just doing things historically, because I think we're going to get lost and basically keep on going back to things that we've said in earlier lectures, try to tackle it from a matter of what are the terms that people use or uh, in having halachic discussions and really have good conversations on what these things mean. 
So today, I want to start a conversation on tradition or Misora. And the intro here, instead of like starting off with, well, you know, the word Misora means handed down, start biblically working the way down. I want to do excerpts from what I consider one of the most important articles uh, to come out, certainly in the 1990s, or at least, I mean, this was published in 19, uh, uh, Turamata Journal, dated 1998, 1999, um, by Rabbi Jacob uh, J. Schachter, otherwise known as J.J. Schachter, called Facing the Truths of History. This article I th- uh, is online. You can download the whole thing for free on YU Torah. I would say that this article is probably as important as Rupture and Reconstruction uh, by Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik. The thrust of this piece, as we're going to see, before you even discuss what are the halakhic components of tradition, what does it mean to have a tradition? In particular, the article that he writes deals with matters of historical revisionism. All right? Because if you want to say that this is a tradition, well, what does it mean to have a tradition? Or to make a distinction here between history, which you can say are things that happened, and mythic history, which is the stories that people tell about it, or a particular narrative using select data in order to portray things that the way you want them portrayed, specifically historical fact. Now, when you talk about Masoret tradition, I mean, the reason why this is an important piece is uh, Rishachter here is writing as a historical perspective in terms of are you representing individuals accurately and what might be some consequences in terms of are you allowed to lie about history or not. It's a very long article, well worth reading the whole thing. We're just, you know, I, I selected some excerpts here. But I, what, what's important here is not only for the issue he raises, but the implications that he doesn't, which is if you're going to be, if you're going to invest a great deal on Masora and tradition, what happens when the actual facts contradict the teachings that you have received? In some cases, what if people flat out lied to you? which, you know, happens on multiple occasions. I'll just give you one example to keep things in mind, and we'll see more here. I have an uncle who was um, asked of Soloveitchik. If he... What? My, my what uncle asked? asked a question of Rav Soloveitchik if he could take a pulpit without a mechitza. And Rav Soloveitchik, as my uncle reported, said yes. One particular Rosh Hashiva at YU said, cannot be. Rav Soloveitchik must have told him that he could take a, mech- a non-mechitza pulpit only under the condition that he put in a mechitza within a certain amount of time. I conferred with my uncle. My uncle said, no, nope, that's not where the conversation went. So someone's lying. Right? Well, somebody's a Batinsky, <laughs> and he wasn't even there when the guy asked... Which is why, like, if... If someone says, I had a conversation with Rav Soloveitchik, and Rav Soloveitchik told me X, unless it's completely out of character, now keep in mind, I never met Rav Soloveitchik, I never claimed to be an expert in Rav Soloveitchik's teachings, I actually intentionally avoid that because it's such a radioactive topic around, particularly Yeshiva University, where everyone tries to recreate him in his own image, and we'll actually deal with that example. Mm. But someone... The, right, I have no reason to doubt my uncle, right? Because he has no reason to lie. But I do know that there is a certain 
um, approach that people want to portray Rav Soloveitchik, where it's not like it's in, if you create Rav Soloveitchik to be a certain type of person, any data to the contrary that breaks that idea of tradition of Rav Soloveitchik is very dangerous. Mm. And now you can no longer rely on tradition. And we're going to see that inside. So, Ed, start us off. Um, I didn't list the page numbers here, so please excuse me. These are all excerpts. Mm-hmm. Again, the article is Facing the Truths of History from J.J. Schachter. Uh, if you're following along with the source sheets, the link to download it for free online is at the bottom. You can find it on YU Torah. It's a long, uh, again, it's a very long essay, but I think it is really important for the issues that he's raising about what happens when actual history violates mythic history or violates the image of people that you want to portray, and even though he doesn't deal explicitly with the halachic implications of Misora, this is a crucial question that you need to ask even before you start talking about what is the role of halacha and what is the role of tradition because this is integral to define what is tradition. Is it what actually happened or is it what we tell you that things happened whether or not things actually happened in such and such a way? Before I start reading, I, yeah. I'm thinking of the account of the Sinai revelation in uh, the Torah I have my doubts as to whether there's any historicity ah, to it. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. That is a wonderful question. Hold on to that. Mm-hmm. That is that is an absolutely fantastic question because from what we've discussed and what we'll see, so much of the rabbinic tradition, we saw that with the sources of rabbinic authority, one justification for rabbinic authority that the rabbis themselves give is that they are part of an unbroken chain of tradition going back to the revelation at Harsinai. So if you don't believe in some sort of historical incident of God giving the Torah to the Jewish people, well then nothing in the Jewish religion is really going to make that much sense. Unless you hold like Mordecai Kaplan where, yeah, this whole thing is just part of, you know, a narrative, but what's more important is Jews keep some sort of culture where God is removed from, you know, or can be removed from the equation, not that he is, yeah. Do you know what the timeline is from the Jesus round to, um, Hasinai to um, what's that, Korach. Uh, Lego, it, it just I mean, reading in the Torah, it's sort of very compressed. Yeah, uh, not offhand. Okay. I mean, yeah, I probably should, if I think about it, you know, can certainly find it, but hey, it's early. I didn't get that much sleep last night, and it's not like I'm good <laughs> in math to begin with, so. If the, uh, the Rambam's chain of, of exactly, is right. where my, my credulity... Absolutely. <laughs> but then the question then also becomes, how much weight is really dependent on certain things of that nature, and how much do you rely on it? The modern-day reliance of tradition is very different than the reliance of tradition back in the time of Chazal, meaning it could have been an establishment of like, Here's why we might be allowed to, you know, have the... When Chazal used the Misorah, or used, like, the idea of a tradition, it was a way of saying, here's why our positions may be correct. Here were the teachings that I've had. The contemporary use of tradition is often used to mean something far beyond, um, you know, who has the right to make certain Zerud or Taka note, it can also take on a means, and we'll actually get to this, I think, in a Wednesday class, because I decided it's important enough to deal with. If you want to do, say, certain innovations in ritual practice that are within the realm of law, 
the idea of a Misorah tradition has extended beyond pure authority of who has a right to make as they wrote in Takanot, which interpretations are valid and which interpretations are invalid, to, well, if we've never done it before, it must intrinsically be prohibited. And we'll see that, how that develops first. But again, we really should get things out this long excerpt. So start us off here. The truth is that historical truth per se as an independent value in and of itself has not fared well in Jewish tradition. It has already repeatedly been noted that the entire enterprise of history as we understand it today was not valued by Chazal. Scholars have long recognized that the historical dog did not bark loudly in the Jewish past. Yeah, he makes a lot of quotes here, and I took out the footnotes. If you want the original citations, please see the article. Arnaldo Momigano put the matter very clearly. On the one hand, the post-biblical Jews really thought they had in the Bible all the history that mattered. On the other hand, the whole development of Judaism led to something unhistorical, eternal, the law, the Torah. The significance which the Jews came to attach to the Torah killed their interest in general historiography. Historiography. History had nothing to explain and little to reveal to the man who meditated the law day and night. Although recent scholarship has refined the far-reaching implications of this statement, arguing that rabbinic literature does reflect a more sophisticated understanding of and appreciation for certain aspects of historical thinking, it remains quite clear that the Talmudists were no historians and did not consider the pursuit of historical truth as a significant component of their system of values. So the first question is, when we talk, I mean, he's writing kind of as a historian here. What, I mean, you have in the Torah, Zechor Yomot Olam Dor Vador, uh, which seems to be, you know, at least a biblical affirmation of no stuff that happened in the past. Chazal, though, you don't really find in the Gemara a sense of being historians, or at least I'm trying to think of any sort of parallel, like maybe like Josephus, although people can argue how much of Josephus was legitimate history versus a scribe with his own axe to grind. Uh, you can argue that Chazal went through a bit of revisionism themselves. We spoke about that here a while back uh, over things like Hanukkah. Meaning the rabbinic narrative of Hanukkah is very different than what you'd find in the book of Maccabees, mm. right? So were they interested in historical truth or were they interested in a certain type of narrative of things that come out? When we do every Friday night here Midrash, you know, the core thing that we try to teach here is that they weren't trying to say, here's something that actually happened as much as giving you a, the meaning or the message behind it. But there wasn't as much of a value of, like, believe this as historical truth. It's a very different approach to things. But at the same time, they did not rely on it as much as you might think of it today. As well, this is the way things always were, and therefore these are the way things always must be. All right? So even just laying the groundwork, you know, in terms of when did you find the study of history itself? Or at least history by the modern-day academic standards of what history is. And this is where historiography comes in. Historiography, for really oversimplifying it, can be the study of the study of history. Meaning, it's almost like a weird meta thing, but it's going back and discovering how did people understand their own histories. 
today you can read like different, like there is a whole bunch of data out there, right? How you go about amassing data, what counts as data for history? What do you accept? What do you ignore? What questions do you ask? What suffices as an answer? Are you trying to achieve uh, an agenda? Meaning I could spin a history to achieve an agenda by cherry picking facts. Mm. Uh, a good example of this, um, anyone here like watching documentaries? Documentaries are a wonderful example of this because a documentary, especially political documentaries, are going to be skewed in one, you know, direction or another. And it'll be like cherry picking data. And you could say, well, this too is a form of historiography of how do you go about using certain facts and data to, you know, sort of say, well, this is what happened, you know, to the exclusion of everything else. This is like the left and right views of Obamacare. Mm. And that's not even history, but what, or even like you, you fast forward a hundred years, historiography and what, how people are going to describe the administration of, of George W. Bush is going to be fascinating. I don't, I'm not like considering how negative he was perceived as president. Um, it's going to be hard to account for how much is partisan versus how much is really bad. How do you even go about making those determinations? Uh, and that's going to be fascinating. Of like, how do you do historiography when you have so much more media data out there? <coughs> At any rate, you know the point is, Chazal didn't have that. Yes, and historiography will belong to academics because you'll rehash and you'll say, well, this is how one side did it, and this is how another side did it. Um, okay, continue to another segment here. Indeed, after acknowledging the lack of his interest in history among the pre-modern rabbinic scholars in the passage cited above, Rabbi Chaim Ozer Gradinsky continued to note that with the advent Advent. of reform, those non- or anti-traditional Jews who were engaged in the study of history were removed from a first-hand knowledge of the tradition and presented it in a warped way, quote, they desecrated history and forged it, unquote, in an attempt to discredit the fundamentals of the written and oral Torah, he wrote. It is therefore now vitally necessary, he said, to combat this, quote, poison, unquote, and present the real history with holy purity, al-Taharata Kodesh. Yeah. Just as historical scholarship is being used in the service of reform, so did it come to be used, albeit in sometimes a different way, in the service of tradition. In spite of the fact that much of this history writing is subjective, anachronistic, typological, and uncritical, reflecting the biases and tendentiousness of hagiography at its historically most inaccurate, there were orthodox writers who stressed absolute fealty to the truth as the distinguishing characteristic of the historical enterprise. They were different from the reformers and the advocates of... Wissenschaft. 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 Well, yes, fine. Wissenschaft. Wissenschaft des Judentums was the scientific study of Judaism. Hmm. Consider, you know, the, the forerunner of academic Jewish studies. They argued because they would be honest and tell the truth the real truth. What's fascinating here is J.J. Shafter is making a distinction between history and tradition. You can imagine history is what actually happened. Tradition is what you tell your kids and your grandkids. Right? 
Now, here is also a huge, huge difference. Like, you know, let's say look at a and you come up with this, uh, and even the um, academic traditions come up with historical revisionism. You go back and you retell the stories that you were already told. Uh, he even mentions in the article here matters of revisionist Zionism. Meaning the story that I was told about the formation of the state of Israel, right, was very, you know, rah, 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 go Jews. You have other opinions that come up that are more critical of the formation of the state of Israel. Uh, Benny Morris wrote an incredibly controversial book that turned on its head the mythic history of the tradition that was passed down from generation to generation. Look at America, right? In some parts of uh, the country... The tradition of America is triumphalism and exceptionalism. And in other parts, it's built on the backs of slaves. Okay? Now, there are elements of truth, but there's a, a, to both, the question is, what is the tradition that you're passing down? And that is, significant, that is a significant difference there. Now, when it says here the truth and the real truth, one of the things that he's, he deals with in the article is errors of omission versus commission. Meaning, sometimes you can tell a story and omit certain facts that might be inconvenient. Mm. Then there are other ways you manipulate history by outright lying and perpetuating fabrications. Taking license. No, I will actually say lying. Taking license is one way of doing it, but you actually have people who lie about history. Uh, or lie about, or tell you things that happened that did not happen. Example, when I have, again, an uncle in Hawaii Rosh Yeshiva, one of whom had a first-hand conversation, or tells me he has a first-hand conversation with Rosalovichik, someone else tells me that this conversation could not have happened the way it goes, one of them is mistaken. No, 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 but that's not lying. I, I object okay. to calling the, the opinion that says he could not have said that a lie. No. Fair point. Unless he said he did not say that. Right. And the truth is, I forget the exact language used. For certain conversations I have, only, there's only so much I'm going to commit to memory. I've got enough garbage floating around in here, like certain details. Okay, you're right. That, that is a fair statement. So I picked up what he actually gives, a bunch of examples here about where great rabbis and great figures have been misrepresented. This uh, skipping uh, parts into the, in, uh, the article... Uh, he continues with a discussion over Rav Soloveitchik, in particular, his position on secular learning, right? which for some reason is still a big deal at YU, the whole Torah Umada thing. So please, uh, George, read the next paragraph. There was an article that seemed to characterize Rav Soloveitchik as either not being a fan of um, you know, secular learning or whatnot, I, again, took the elision for it, but read he, where it says... He himself was... Uh, read, read, okay. just, just. Shortly after this article appeared, I had occasion to visit my late teacher, Dr. Isidore Tversky, who told me that he was quite upset by what he considered to be this misleading characterization of his father-in-law's attitude towards MAGA uh, or non-Torah disciplines. He read this passage, as, I, as did I, not as an explanation as to why the Rav went uh, to the University of Berlin when he did, providing the context uh, for the decision being made when it, w- when it was, uh, but why he ever went at all. To explain what happened here, there was some debate as to whether or not he went to the University of Berlin to, avoid, if I'm remembering correctly, to avoid army service, or did he do it because he actually believed in going to the University of Berlin? 
He got a PhD in philosophy. He most certainly did. Um, Dr. Torsky told me. Dr. Torsky told me that when the Rev was a teenager, his father, who was then extremely poor, hired a tutor to teach him secular studies. Dr. Torsky uh, promised me that he would write an article for, uh, for this journal presenting an accurate portrayal of his father-in-law's position, but that, in the meantime, I should consult part of the eulogy of his father-in-law that he had then recently published, which dealt with the issue. A few months later, after he became ill, I visited him in his home, and he reiterated his promise, uh, hoping that the Rabono Olam, Rabbani Olam, uh, would grant him the strength to fulfill it. Uh, alas, his illness overcame him, and his article was never written. We are left only with the words of the eulogy that I quote at length, as much in memory for my teacher as in my attempt to correctly portray the attitude of his father. Before we get to the actual details here, the reason why he put in the whole paragraph is that he himself is actually conveying, J.J. Schechter is actually conveying, his own sense of tradition... Right, that he got from Isidore Tursky, who was the son-in-law of Rosalovechik. Right, mm-hmm. so you like in his own sense, he's he's not just giving like established history here. He's also portraying the history behind the tradition in addition to history. So go ahead. Uh, there is my opinion. Uh, so to explain, this quote here is from uh, Tursky's eulogy of Rosalovechik. So this is Tursky explaining his father-in-law. There is, in my opinion, no justification for debate on the equivocation concerning the Rev's relation to general culture, philosophy, science, literature, but it is necessary to put it put this in proper perspective. The facts are unmistakable. He achieved sovereign mastery of these fields. He often reminisced with me about his student years and his unquenchable thirst for, for knowledge. The impact of those years on him was great and lasting. His quest for wide-ranging scientific humanistic knowledge was successful. The record of his dedication quest for an ongoing use of his knowledge is clear and unambiguous. Uh, similarly, if you knew nothing about the Rav's biography and merely studied the Ish uh, Halacha, Halachic man, halacha, um, you would uh, Halachic man, right? Uh, you would confront a massive strategic reliance on the history of philosophy. I was going to mention that philosophy and science. Uh, the first two pages introduce you to Hegel, Kierkegaard, Rudolf Otto, and Karl Barth, Edward Sprenger, and Bernard Lassalle, Rousseau, Nietzsche, Bergson, uh, Spengler, and uh, Heidegger. A breathtaking list. A page later, you meet Plato and Aristotle, Galileo and Newton, and so thereafter, uh, Herschel, um, Scheller, Scher- uh, Berkeley, and Herman Cohn, the person uh, on whom, incidentally, uh, Rosal Vecher wrote his PhD in Berlin. Uh, so continue. If you persisted. Yeah. Um, if you persisted and made your way uh, to the end of this remarkable philosophical spiritual meditation, the very... Last note, it focuses your attention on a cast of influential figures, Kant and Herman Cohen, Kierkegaard, Ibsen, Schiele, uh, and Heidegger, together with the Rambam and Ibn Gabriel, and then once again, after passing reference to uh, Duns, 
Scottish, I don't remember that one. Yeah. On to uh, Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, the, these preferences reflect not only the greater erudition and precision in the history of philosophy, but also the philosophic temper, a philosophic mode of thinking, and a subtle analytic mind. Okay, now, the reason why this is a really important eulogy was there was someone else, a white Rosh Hashiva at the time, who left YU, um, said at the funeral, uh, or at the eulogy, he said, he never saw Rav Soloveitchik reading a secular book. And that was his way of portraying Rav Soloveitchik as someone who is disinterested in secular studies. Mm, now, the fa- now the fact that... Uninterested or disinterested? Uninterested. Oh, disinterested thank you. Disinterested means impartial. Oh, well, it could be either one, meaning it, just, it wasn't important to him. So let's say disinterested might even be more accurate there. Since you're going to correct my grammar, I'll correct yours here. <laughs> but you're right. No, the truth is you're absolutely right. It should always be corrected when it comes to precision. Now, when I make that statement, I can say that statement too. I never saw Rav Soloveitchik holding a secular book. That is a 100% true statement because to my knowledge, I don't think I ever saw Rav Soloveitchik in person. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's possible I did not not realize it, but look, he passed away when I was still in high school. Uh, my uncle was very close with him, but I don't recall ever being taken to, to meet him, right? So am I making a true statement? Absolutely. Is it an accurate portrayal of him? Absolutely not. You can't get a PhD in philosophy from any university without being forced to read at least one secular book. It does not happen. Even if you're going to do a... You know, it's just impossible. The very fact that Rosalovich quotes these sources, and might I say, quotes them accurately. Or at least, you know, it's, anyone can, like, mention a whole bunch of names. And let's face it, it's pretty easy to quote people incorrectly. But if you think he's wrong, he's footnoting Rudolf Otto at the very beginning of Halachic Man. You look up Rudolf Otto, does the citation say what he says it says? Clearly it does. Which meant at some point, he must have read him in order to write this. Uh, you're setting up a straw man. <laughs> you're just spinning it. Yep. Yes. I, th- I think his point could have been, you know, I never saw him reading a secular book, meaning later in life he left that path and, 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 and discarded it. Okay. I would, One second. Yeah. I would argue against that. Okay. Because he wrote Halakha Man much later in his life. 1944. Right. Well, 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 your argument I don't think holds, George, okay. because Halakha Man was published in 1944. Okay. Rosal Vajic passed away in what, 94? Something like that? I, I, I should know the year. I think but it was, it was 94. <coughs> that he had to refer to these things. Okay, but Dan's point could be correct in that 50 years later, he might have changed his mind. Okay. That's what Dan would be arguing. He it, outgrew the secular knowledge base. Then wouldn't he have written something that would argue against this position of Lachman? Why would he have to? Well, because if he moves away from it and feels that it's not really worthy of yeshiva's uh, study, then you would say, look, forget about what I did when I was younger. It really was just a past. You know what? Very few people think that way. Like, you would have to have... That's elevatric. Yeah, but it would require from... Again, I'm not. I cannot. To a student, I can't get in his mind. 
Okay. But I can say, unless you have an incredibly high opinion of yourself, not what other people think of you, unless you have an incredibly high opinion of yourself, you're not going to put into print every single time your mind equivocates. Where it's important, let's say in academia, if I built an academic reputation believing certain ideas and following certain approaches and I switch schools, then I need to make at least some sort of public statement of here's why I'm adjusting and why. Where did Rosalovich explicitly contradict, or at least the fact that he didn't feel the need to contradict it, you can almost argue from silence. I mean, he was on record as being okay with it. I mean, he taught at Yeshiva University. So he was clearly okay with you know secular studies being taught. He studied it himself. I don't know how, as late in his life, he referred to secular studies because I was never in his shear. Right? For all I know, he referenced... Well, I don't know. All right? And you'd have to go, like, what were the later writings that he did? But the point is to characterize him as someone who did not value it at all. Had he really said, you know, this is worthless, probably would have said something, if it would have been that important. Right? Now, but here you're trying to read into something that you just plain old don't know. Right? The evidence that you have, we know for certain he at least valued secular studies at one point in his life. You don't know for certain that he rejected it. So then the question is, what is history and what is the tradition that you're spinning? I would have to imagine being in his class and a shir, and somebody raises, you know, he says something, somebody raises something from a halachic man, and he would then have to say, but that was something in my youth, it was a flash, it's not really important. This is the way it should be. Again, different scholars have different approaches to what they did in their early life. Some may feel detail, you know, may feel compelled to issue public retractions. And the question is also, how often do you do public retractions? Right? Just because you change your mind, people change their mind and will say publicly, I changed my mind. I'll say, oh, but here's what he said 30 years ago. So even that's not going to help so much. If you want to spin him in a certain way, data is data. I mean, today, it, it, it gets complicated. Um, here's another example. Uh, J.J. Schachter in the article goes through numerous examples. Here's just another one I cut out. <clears throat> Rabbi Shraga Feivel Mendelowitz was one of the most extraordinary American Jewish educational visionaries of the last hundred years, largely responsible for setting the foundations of orthodoxy in this country, in the first half of the 20th century. Born in Austria-Hungary in 1886, he arrived in the United States at the age of 27, and after serving for seven years as a teacher and principal in a Torah school in Scranton, PA, he became the principal of Yeshiva Torah Vedat in Brooklyn, New York in 1921. In addition to serving as one of America's most important Russia Yeshiva, he also founded or helped in the founding of other important communal institutions like Torah or Masora, Beis Midrash Gavoa in Lakewood, Beis Midrash Elyon in Spring Valley, Masifta Chai in Berlin, Telshi Yeshiva, Camp Masifta, and the Orthodox Weekly Dos Yiddish Licht, as well as Torah school for, schools for girls. A recent biography of Reb Mendlowitz contains a section entitled, quote, Against Going to College, unquote. The author wrote that Rav Shraga Feivel was totally opposed to this type of secular education for two reasons. First, 
No one attending college could ever develop into a Gadol B'Torah because mastery of the Torah required a full-time commitment. And second, the heretical ideas to which the Yeshiva Bachar would be exposed in college would prove to be too great a challenge to his faith. Nevertheless, a number of boys persisted in going and to deal with the problem, some members of the yeshiva's board of directors decided to open their own college in conjunction with Yeshiva Rab Chaim Berlin and Yeshiva Rab Jacob Joseph that would feature secular studies with the proper direction under appropriate auspices. All arrangements were made, but when they came to inform Rabbi Mendelowitz about their plan, he responded that it would require the support of leading Gedolei Hadur. He himself consulted with Rabbi Aaron Kuttler, and when the latter expressed opposition to it, the entire plan was dropped. The archives of the Board of Regents of New York State contain the original records of this aborted institution to be called the American Hebrew Theological University, and the story told there is significantly different. In 1946, the board received a request for a charter for the school, which would offer a full undergraduate secular program, and was also considering establishing three graduate schools, requiring a BA degree for admission, a school of theology, a school of social studies, and a school of administration. Rather than having been informed about this project at the end of the process, the records indicate that Rabbi Mendelowitz, together with Rabbi Yitzchak Hutner, Rosh Yeshiva of Rabbi Chaim Berlin, was a member of the Board of Trustees. Indeed, he was the designer and moving force behind this entire effort. So here, I mean, this is what you might call the, I mean, I don't know if this was an art scroll book, but this is what you call the art scrollization of history, right? Where you have someone who's making claims that seem to be unsupported by actual documentary facts. Let me give you a story here. This is a funny one. Uh, There's a woman who's in the process of converting, and one of the lists, you know, one of the things that you know, uh, I think the RCA requires for conversion is some knowledge of Jewish history. So I get this question. It's like, you know, Rabbi, can you give me a good book on Jewish history? I said, well, there's actually this book, you know, History of the Jewish People by H.H. Ben Sasson. It's dry reading, but it's a good overview of lots of different stages. She asks, who's this guy Beryl Ween? Referring to Beryl Wine. Beryl Wine is an ex, you know, is a world-renowned expert in the mythic history, but by no academic accounts is he considered a historian. He t- and I told the person, you know, it's important to know his narrative because this is what Jews think about their history, but it's not necessarily what actually happened. It's spun in a certain way. The art school Gedolim books work this way too, right? So here you have a case where. You know, you've got a biography, an official published book that makes claims that seem to be inaccurate because the person who's writing it doesn't care about what actually happened. He cares about the way you want to think about the people and their attitudes about how things have happened. I'll give you another example here on the issue of Chal of Yisrael. Um, one of Rav Moshe Feinstein's uh, more influential responsa was on Chal of Yisrael, where he said we can rely on the government's uh, oversight to ensure that the milk that we're getting is, in fact, cow's milk. One interpretation of this is, well, Rav Salavage, what Rav Moshe Feinstein only meant this as 
an exception. You shouldn't rely on this. It's only for, like, if you can't do any better, but you really shouldn't rely on this. One of our members in the shul studied at MTJ, Rav Moshe Feinstein's yeshiva, when Rav Moshe Feinstein was still alive. At MTJ, when Rav Moshe Feinstein was still alive, they served Chalav Yisrael and non-Chalav Yisrael milk, which meant Rav Moshe Feinstein's heter, his dispensation on Chalav Yisrael, was actually employed in Rav Moshe Feinstein's own yeshiva. And I got this from someone who attended that very yeshiva. Right? Must have been lying. What? Well, it's not a matter. You see, I'm not interested in putting up with his leniencies as much as you want to spin it in a certain way, but it clearly does. Here's the, a nice summary pa- uh, paragraph that I have from J.J. Schachter. There was a, um, something in, I think, the RCA Journal after a year or so after the Bosch passed that now that he's not here, we don't have to put up with his leniencies. So, Ramosha Feinstein, according to this report from someone who was there, who I have no reason to doubt, didn't believe it was a leniency, thought that this was law. Here's a good summary paragraph. In sum, the historical evidence makes it undoubtedly clear there of Eliyahu Eliezer Dessler, the author of the Mecht of Meliahu, read Uncle Tom's Cabin as a young boy. The Gaon of Vilna decried the ignorance of Sha'are HaChochmot, mean the gates of secular wisdom, in a conversation with Bar- Rav Baruch of Shklov. Rav Samson Rafal Hirsch intended his Torah in Derech Eretz ideology as lichatchila, meaning as not as something you begrudgingly accept, but something that you embrace wholeheartedly. You want the details? Read the full 70-page article. Rav Reina Bacha Berlin read, if not studied Mishnayot. Secular studies were allowed in Velazhin. Rav Joseph B. Soloveitchik attended the University of Berlin not merely to avoid the Polish draft. Rav Sraga Feivel Mendelovitz was actively involved in the founding of the American Hebrew Theological University. Rabbi Shlomo Yosef Zevin praised the state of Israel, and Rabbi Elia Meir Block participated in a Cleveland community-wide celebration of Yom Ha'atzma'ut. That all this is true is clear. Is there then any justification for omitting or distorting these, quote, facts? Can anyone in good conscience sanction the behavior of anyone who acts as if he agrees with the following, this, uh, if he agrees with the following sentiment? If you don't like the past, change it? Does anyone have a right to sanitize or whitewash history and engage in inventing the truth? Is not an emet, is not a truth, based on sheker, based on lies, ultimately nothing than sheker itself? Ultimately nothing than lies. And this is the real big question about Masorian tradition. He doesn't address it from a halachic standpoint, which I think is really notable. He's focusing on it from a historical narrative perspective. Maybe in the back of your head, I've honestly never spoken to... I've met him once or twice, um, J.J. Schachter. But it could be in the back of his head. For our purpose in the halachic process, this is an important introduction. Because when you talk about tradition and what was done, what does it mean what was done? comes up in the YU base midrash often, where people say, here's what we do in the YU base midrash because this is the tradition. But keep in mind, the turnover at YU is every couple of years. You've got a whole new crowd there. So you've got a couple of people who are there you know, for 10 years, have a lot of respect. Well, actually, here's what we did when I first got here, and it changed at this point. So what you think was always the tradition at YU, we really only started two, three years ago, right? But you think this is what we always used to do. Um, and things change. 
So how do you have this balance between tradition and change? When do you say, well, this is what we've done and this is the way we always have to do it? If you want to consider tradition to be part of your not just a part of, I should say, but if you want to define tradition as the ultimate authority to whom you answer, above the Gemara, above anything else, what it is that you do, can you even make sure that what you call tradition is correct? Or at least, are we going to force you to make a distinction between history and tradition? Meaning history being the truth of what happened, and tradition being what you tell everyone else, this is the way things have happened, even though it is historically inaccurate and can be demonstrated as such. Isn't there strong evidence that um, the early dashes of the Gemara, uh, and even those that came after them, uh, had great interaction with the sciences or the knowledge of the period of time that was outside... Israel's. So now, I'm, now I can throw something else at you. You said, isn't there great evidence? So I will ask you to justify. What great evidence are you bringing to the table? Well, uh, knowledge of the stars. Uh, mm. uh, yep. Uh, knowing how to divide time. Yep. Um, ver- yep. Gamar does talk about that. Absolutely. Right? But people, I'll tell you another good case of Gemara. There's another one. couldn't do it in isolation. There was a particular. interact with this. I'll do you one better. There was a particular Yu Rosh Yeshiva who said it was for, it's forbidden to say that Gedolim are influenced by their surroundings. The problem is, you have clear Gemaras where rabbis, Tanaim and Amorayim, are responding to the situations around them and their own experiences. So what do you do? You just ignore those Gemaras? If you're talking about a halakhic perspective, the answer is yes. It's not part of our Masor. It's not part of our tradition. Or there are other ways of dismissing things. When you discover new... Uh, this came up when the Me'iri was discovered. Um, I mean, yes, he lived a long time ago, but when you discover new writings or new manuscripts, what do you do with those? Right? You find things that challenge your status quo. Right? If you're going to base halacha on the Gemara because you think that's authoritative, what happens when I come up with new, better manuscripts that seem to throw everything that you've said out the window? Is it, are you more concerned with the truth of what the Gemara says? Or are you more concerned with the tradition that you happen to have received? Uh, here's a story you heard from Rabbi Ozer Glickman. Uh, who I don't know if he still teaches at YU, but he did at one point. He was a student of Rav Soloveitchik and uh, Rav Olivni uh, at Columbia at the same time. David Weiss. David Weiss Drastically different approaches to learning Torah. Uh, one was brisk, and the other was academic Talmud. To quote one professor of mine, you know, they're absolutely incompatible. Um, they're, they're just completely... It, no, and here's a good example why. Uh, Glickman told the story that Rosalovechik gave a full class, which, you know, they have over two hours, on why in a particular Mishnah there was a linguistic shift, where the first part of the Mishnah used one term, the second part of the Mishnah used a different term. And, you know, sometimes Brisk will focus a lot on why do you have changes in language. He told Rav Livni, Halivni, the story once. He said, what did you learn? He told him over the story. The way uh, Rabbi Glickman reported, Halivni chuckled, pulled off a critical edition of the Mishnah off his shelf. One version of the Mishnah had it both one way. The other version had it both the other way. There you go. That's your answer. 
But those are very different approaches to the historicity of the Talmud. This comes up in Rambam too, uh, something which we'll discuss in the later classes. Women serving in positions of authority. Actually, let me put this on pause so I can do it inside. So here's the Rambam. Sorry, um, you had to wait. I put on pause. Uh, This is Hilchot Melachim, the Law of Kings. So it's the last book in Rambam's uh, Mishnah Torah. Chapter 1, Halacha 5. Okay? Here's what Rambam writes. Ein ma'amidin isha b'malchut. You cannot appoint a woman to the kingship, meaning the supreme position in the monarchy cannot be female. Why? Shine'emar melech v'lo malka. Because the Torah says, som tesim alecha melech, appoint for yourself a king, and specifically says king to the exclusion of a queen. That Derasha, that Midrash Halacha, is recorded in the Sifrei. That is a rabbinic Midrash Halacha, a rabbinic legal exposition of a biblical verse, that the word Melech comes to exclude queen. Okay? Mm-hmm. Rambam, though, continues. V'chein kol misimot Yisrael, any appointment among Jews, ein maminim bahem ela ish. You can only appoint a man and not a woman. Problem is that last part of the Rambam is unsubstantiated anywhere in rabbinic literature. The Sifrei, that, or Sifrei, should, well, whatever, um, this, the Ma'amar Chazal that Rambam is, has in the first part of this halacha says exactly as he quotes it. The second part isn't there. At best, he was working off of what we can only say is a corrupted text. In no critical edition, and you can actually get a critical edition of the Sifri on Devarim, doesn't appear at all. Are there uncritical editions? Well, by critical editions, I mean things that have actually been discovered, you know, it's like, you know, in manuscripts, there's no basis for this. According to the halachic approach of Rambam, he would be the first one to tell you if you've got a better text. You follow the better text as opposed to, you know, what I happen to say. But that's not how contemporary practice works. People will rely on this Rambam to say this is why women can't be on shul boards, let alone be shul presidents. No, but it says close missing up no appointees. And yet you actually have a Gemara about a woman serving as a Gizborit, functioning as a treasurer. Right? Now you can argue, as we said before, no one follows Rambam consistently. And you could easily ask people, why do you care about this Rambam as opposed to like the dozens of other halachot Rambam that you just ignore flat out? The answer is, you are using the Rambam to justify the practices that you've already done. You're in a sense working backwards. Even though the halachic justification for the Rambam is tenuous and perhaps non-existent, since this is what everyone else says, because it's based off of Rambam, that's where you have it. And then you have the difficulty of tradition versus history. Rambam's approach to halacha would be to say, reject my halacha if you've got a better source. Yet, people will follow the Rambam la halacha, but not his method. Didn't you have a Jewish queen towards the end of the second temple? Yeah. I can't remember her name. Um, Helene Malka, there, there's a difference between, I honestly, you know, the truth is I should know this and I don't. 
there could be, there's a difference between a Malka who is a queen who's married to a king versus the king being the supreme monarch. Meaning, how to put this, in England, right? You know, you've got, I mean, you've got the queen, you've got the queen of England, right? Who's got that position. In Jewish law, she would not be able to hold that. Meaning, she'd have, she could have a title queen, but she couldn't be the supreme monarch. It would always have to go immediately to, I mean, you would have what's called the queen mother, right? Or someone who has that, you know, the, the mother of the queen. It doesn't revert to the spouse. It goes down the line to the next son. So just because you have a queen doesn't mean she is the head. Or at least she's the political head, right? It could just mean she's married to the king. Also, you may be able to argue as follows. Some would say the prohibition is not a matter of a woman in that position, but a matter of some. Whom do you appoint in that position? She is married to a king and the king passes. Well, there's a difference between title and authority. And honestly, I am not up on the laws of, you know, Jewish dynastic law. Um, I admit it's never quite come up. Anyway. There was someone who uh, said that um, they should teach the Torah to uh, boys and to girls so the Torah would not be forgotten. It was a who was married, uh, not married, who was the, uh, had a brother who was a Pharisee. It's something like that. I'd have to look it up. You got a bunch of questions, Dan. Oh, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I can start with the Rambam, the yeah. most recent. Um, he could have been saying something else. He, he could have maybe not been quoting from the Sifrei Sif or Sifrei, okay. whichever it was. Uh, but um, the reason the difference is, colloquially it's called the Sifri. My father likes pointing out it really should be pronounced Sifrei. Why? Because it's plural right. for books. Right. The plural in Aramaic ends with its so really it should be Sifrei, but if you say Sifrei, people don't know what you're talking about. It's like, appropriately, it's not Tanu Rabbanan, it's Tino Rabbanan. Oh. As in, you, because it's supposed to be Tinon, is the uh, third person plural, like Yehei Lahon Ulachon, that we say in Kaddish, but the Nun fell in later you know, versions of Aramaic. So it should be, it should be Tinon Rabbanan, which gets shortened to Tino Rabbanan, as in Tino Rabbanan is to love Rabbanan. Um, but we pronounce it Tanu Rabbanan. Whatever. You know, it's one of those things where sometimes you have to sacrifice accuracy if you want to have a conversation with people. Otherwise, you just sound like a jerk. Um, now, I can say, like, yes, it should be this way, and depending on to whom I speak, you know, whatever. Point is, in this, you, getting back to your original point, like, he may not have been quoting this book, he may but, have just been saying, and similarly, we should not appoint women to other offices. Wonderful. Even so, I could argue, according to Rambam's halachic method, he needs to justify that halachic extension. Right? Which, I mean, when you say you follow Rambam, there's a difference between following specific Rambam laws and following his approach to halacha. You know, I've tried getting the point across, I mean, not just here but elsewhere, you can follow the tradition of Rambam, the halakhic tradition of Rambam, to argue with Rambam. 
And people don't get that. It's like, how can you be cholik on Rambam? It's like, no, I'm following the Rambam's tradition of his approach to Jewish law, and I come to a different conclusion. But I'm following Rambam more than you are by blindly following the laws that he says and doing what he says by rote. There's a huge difference there. But it just seems to me that, that people have come to accept the Rambam as, uh, as if it were the original Moshe. Selectively. Right. People follow... and it, the way, Remember, when we started this in class one, I gave examples of Rambam, Shulchan Aruch, Raman, Mishnah, that no, people don't follow. So anyone that you say, there is no source, Rambam included, that people follow with any sense of consistency. Such that when people say, we do this because Rambam says so, the, the implicit argument is, one ought to follow Rambam. But that is not something that they really believe. Because if you really felt you follow Rambam, or to put it another way, I got into an argument with Rav Tendler over something. And, you know, I, you know, we quoted Ramah, and he said one of the most brilliant lines I've heard him say, quote, we follow the Ramah except when we don't. <laughs> it's wonderful. You know, that's, and the same thing applies to Rambam. People follow the Rambam except when they don't. Continue. I, once he's got a bunch, so hold on to it. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, I mean, I would like to see Schachter apply um, his respect for history to the Rambam's chain of tradition from Moses down to... Yeah, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Uh, you know, I, I don't know how accessible he is. As far as I know, he could be easy to track down. Feel free asking him. I, that's not a joke. I mean, when you have people who are still alive and accessible, and they write something that's resonating, and I wasn't lying, but I, I don't use that term lightly when I say this is one of the most important articles, certainly about modern Judaism that you can read, certainly for its implications, and you know, I, I think this ought to be required reading, if nothing else to get people thinking about the difference between history and tradition because very few people do and the author is still around, that you can ask him questions Take the shot. I don't know if he's busy. I don't know if he just write it off. You can say that, you know, I was in a class where this particular person was praising the article. So maybe, you know, he'd be more inclined to answer because you're not trying to pick a fight. But yes, I mean, I would definitely say if someone writes something and you have at least a chance to ask, can you elaborate a little bit more on something? If he has time, great. If not, you haven't lost anything. But absolutely. All right. Moving on. Yeah. Uh, tradition and change. Yeah. Which you mock. Yeah. Uh, it's not that I mock. I mock the way that it's kind of been used. Uh, and it because it's used inconsistently, both by conservative Judaism and by Orthodox Judaism. Uh, and that is a huge, huge problem. It seems to me that every society functions that way. There are some laws that they preserve and some laws that they change. And the Talmud yep. admits that there are times when the Beit Din makes a law and, and the people simply don't observe it and they have to retract the law. Mm -hmm. But those are still part of a halachic system. Assuming the law does get legislated as part of the books, it's actual law. I'll give you an example here. Uh, there was a paternity suit, I believe, in Pennsylvania where uh, the woman cheated on her husband and got pregnant from the other guy. According to Pennsylvania law, the husband was liable for child support. 
even though DNA testing proved he wasn't the father. But according to the law that was on the books in Pennsylvania at the time, he was responsible because it was assumed he was the father. And the court was like, look, this is a stupid law, but it's the law in the books. It's upheld until, you know, the legislature decides and it's constitutional, right? Because you're not breaking anything's rights. It's a stupid law. It's an outdated law. But until the legislature actually, you know, gets off their butts and overturns it, this is the law of the land. And then the question is, what is really defining Jewish law for you in terms of practice? And how do you navigate that balance? Or to put it another way, I, can, I will easily concede that what you're describing is what people do. You're describing the is. But is that what ought to be? Are people doing what they're supposed to be doing? Meaning just because the Jewish community has evolved in a certain way, does that mean that it is halakhically legitimate? And then if so, if you want to say that, yes, it is legitimate for halakha to change, then what are your ground rules? Because if a law can be changed, then any law can be changed. Which laws can be changed and how they can, how can they be changed? Certain things are circumstantial. We no longer have a temple anymore. So there had to have been some adjustments at the time of the Gemara for how do you do certain things. Like, to become a ger, you need to have a korban. You need to have a sacrifice. We don't have korban anymore, right? Yep, we still accept ger. But that change was done through the legislative procedure, which, again, was well established that we discussed in the earlier classes. But today, what would be the difference between getting rid of one aspect versus, yeah, we just want to get rid of Shabbos altogether, Right? If you lose a system, an objective system, you really have Enla Devar Sof. And if you want to say the community will keep you in balance, is that really true? Because remember uh, when the class that we did on Minhak, you have something called an Irni Dachat, where an entire community is swayed to worship idolatry. You don't say you follow Minhagamakam, you destroy the community. You destroy it. And how did, and the Gemara was cognizant of people accepting things that violated Jewish law, and they dealt with that in their own way. They didn't say it was okay. They said, Mutafshi Shogiging value Mizidin. Better they sin in error because they're not going to listen to you than accept that it's right. They only said that what people do has merit in halacha if you happen not to know any better. But if you do know better, you don't follow it. Right? And we're going to discuss this a little bit more in terms of inherited tradition, which you might say is a subset of Minhag. Because Minhag describes what people do. Misorah sort of gives an additional um, gravitas towards it. That it's not just something that, oh, me? Like, I just decided to do something, right? But this is something that's gone on for a while. This is something I got from Ruf Tendler, too. There was one point where some people got in their head that matzo needed to be brown, I don't know, uh, for Pace, I don't know. Uh, this is, he brought this up in Shear once. And I said, and he said, like, this is a crazy innovation. I raised my hand and I said, you know, I don't get it. Because Jewish law and practice has evolved over time. New things have come up. Why is this, like, crazy innovation more crazy than innovations in the past? And he said, you know, stuff that we've been doing for a few hundred years were done by people that I assume were really smart, really intelligent, and had a really good reason for doing so. I know for a fact these people are Ameha Aretz. I know for a fact these people are stupid, these people are idiots. We ignore them. At least if it's a few hundred years old, you might have something to rely on, you know. There's a body of literature. So 
there's a little bit more gravitas if something has been done for a while. But even so, where do you draw the line for that? How do you objectively determine, like, I mean, how can you do me? What is considered an old established custom? All right? Let's say it's 100 years. I mean, it's all relative in the span of history. Okay? For the Baali Tosafot, what was 100, 100 years was a huge deal to them. Today, it's not as much. Percentage-wise, in terms of the course of history, like as the years go on, it's it's not as impressive. And when people study rabbinic literature, it's amazing how people will just skip over hundreds of years as if it's nothing. Um, and it's like, yeah, sure, what happened, you know, in the year seventy is exactly what happened in the year five hundred. It's like you do realize, you know, that's half a millennia right there. That just, yeah, yeah, yeah it's the same thing. Anyway, with a shorter life expectancy, mind you. Anyway, what was my point? Uh, right, Tosvot, uh, no, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Um, right, Kedumim. Look at, say, Reform Judaism. Reform's been around for over 100 years, so 150 years, somehow, something like that. Is that considered old enough to be Minaka Kedumim? Right, you have a tradition that goes back to 150 years. Is that any different than a tradition, you know, other traditions that came up for 150 years? Is that your criteria, just that it's old? And because it's old, it now is significant? These are questions we're going to you know, tackle in uh, you know, future classes on this. And keeping track of the schedule, not sure like, when I'm around and when I'm not just yet working on that too. But these are, this is why you know, I, it's, I think it'll be better to do a critical terms thing about tradition and really tackle these questions. What did Gamara say about it? What do other people say about it? And what are the implications of making those statements? What are the consequences of taking them to the logical conclusion? And if you're going to say, I mean, eventually, I think people are going to get stuck in a tautology. Not just like for conservative Judaism, which has its own tautology, even Orthodox Judaism. Um, or it would be one of my favorite logical fallacies. You would appreciate this. Uh, you know the no true Scotsman fallacy? The no true Scotsman fallacy goes something like this. Someone says, no true Scotsman would do something. Oh, but this person does it? Well, that just proves he's not a true Scotsman. Um, and I, you know, like, no Gadol Hador would say X, Y, or Z. And the fact that someone says that proves he's not a Gadol Hador. No Orthodox Jew would do this. Oh, the fact that he does it means he's no longer Orthodox. Right? And then you have circular reasoning, where basically you are right because you are right, QED. That this is what you do, this is what your church does, that's it, it's all done. But then, you know, at least once you admit that, you have to dispel yourselves of the notion that you are a halacha. I mean, the point is that you're following any sort of law. You're worshipping your culture. You're worshipping your society. Right? Now, at least be honest about that. I mean, this is why I really try to make the distinction between being an Orthodox Jew and being a Shomer Torah. Because the two things are not identical. You can be part of the Orthodox Jewish culture and, you know, embezzle from the government. You can steal. You can beat your wife. You can molest kids. You can murder people. And still be considered an, an part of the Orthodox world if you keep the overt rituals. But that has nothing to do with actually keeping God's law. Because you're following the culture, your society that you've deemed sacred... Because you put a primary value over your inherited tradition than over any system of God's law. But you have to flesh all this stuff out, and we're going to continue doing this, to really get that point home that you're talking about distinct entities. 
Do you believe there's any segment of Jewish society that uh, is following halacha coherently? Coherently? And logically? And- As a culture and society? No. <clears throat> I know of individuals who try and who are at least, as, as soon as you're aware of the problem, you do the best that you can. I know of individuals, but I don't know of any group as a whole that really does it. Now, keep in mind, not many people are that aware. A lot of people don't think. A lot of people don't want to think. Um, and people just do what they're accustomed to do out of habit. So wanting to belong to Yeah, but people, I think there's a distinct, I'm not sure if people are conscious about it. Like the Hamonan, your typical shul goer, you know, doesn't think about these things. They just, like, the Pashta Yid thing. Like, you do whatever's been done, but you're also not passing yourself off to others. I mean, I would also make there's a distinction between what you do for yourself and what you try imposing on others. If you say, eh, this is what I do because this is the way I've always done it, like, all right, fine. When you start poskening for other people, you have to do it this way because this is the way I've always done it, then in my opinion you're crossing the line. And it's a really weird phenomenon that I find, you know, people will say like, oh, you're not entitled to an opinion because you're not a guttle, but even though I myself don't have smicha or might not have even studied formally, I am perfectly okay telling all of my friends here's how you should be doing everything, even though you've had absolutely no formal training in Jewish law. Astonishing, but you can say maybe being a yent is part of the tradition too. Um, I don't know. The tr- I don't. I don't know if many people are in their own mind. They might be coherent. They could say, "I'm coherently following Jewish law by following the norms of the community with which I've chosen to affiliate." But they may not see it as a matter of halacha. They may not even be able to articulate it. But you could also argue that they don't really have to, if they're not really bothered by the question. Where you have the problems is when you've got the tensions, when you've got arguments for things like partnership minyanim, things where people will say, yes, by the letter of the law, it's okay, but you're going against our Masora, you're going against our tradition. Now, all of a sudden, you got yourself a culture clash. And, but we're going to do a separate class on that in the midweek part of uh, Current Jewish Questions. All right? What's a partnership minyan? Ah, come to the class and you'll understand what a partnership minyan is. Um, yeah. I thought that the clash of biblical archaeology with tradition and our history was um, the, the, uh, the so, biblical archaeology attempts to say what occurred gives you an accurate picture of history mm-hmm. to the best that we So the question that you're asking we will politely ask Dan to include in his email to J.J. Schachter about if we're talking about accuracy of history, how do you... And please, you know what? If you get a response, I would love if you would share with everyone, because I know Ed would also love the answer to this, too, because that's what he asked at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Ask him if, you know, maintaining historical truth, if not an Emmet based on Checker's nothing ultimately than Checker itself, then how do you maintain the historiography of the Bible if you know based on archaeology Theological evidence that it could not possibly have been as it reported. Add that to your question to him. We'll see what he says. <laughs> it's a wonderful question. You know, I, I got to it. I think it was Jacob Neusner who once said, you can't have good history on bad facts. And with this, we'll conclude. There was a, one of the earlier pieces of serious writing I did on my blog was on the historical meaning of Tisha B'Av. 
Um, I was sitting in, uh, I was in my computer job years back, even I was at Information Builders, and I got an IM asking me what happened on Tisha B'Av. So I quoted, you know, the Mishnah. It's like, oh, you know, Miraglim happening, you just read about it. Okay, Miraglim happening. Like, no, 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 modern day stuff. I'm like, what are you talking about? Friend sends me this link. I think it was uh, Or Torah, something like that. Had a list of 10 modern day events that happened on Tisha B'Av. It's like, wow, I didn't hear of any of this. And then it was a really simple matter of plugging their dates into Hebcal. Calculated, did this happen on Tisha B'Av? And none of it did. <laughs> right? And I'm like, wait a second. You're actually... Lo-. And then there were some other things that they included um, that involved a shift of like the Julian to the Gregorian calendar. So one thing that was way off, like the beginning of one of the Crusades, they said happened on Tisha B'Av. And like, okay, granted, I don't have a specific date, but it was in November. Tisha B'Av doesn't fall out in November in any calendar. Uh, so look that up, the historical uh, meaning of Tisha B'Av, and I actually like go through the list of things. And the truth is, even when you go to the Mishnah of the things that we commemorate on Tisha B'Av, the Gemara admits that actually following the Gemara, virtually nothing happened on Tisha B'Av. Um, like you have drashot that sort of expound on it. You've got contradictory psukim that the Gemara harmonizes. Other things it says there's a tradition, and there's one that it says megalgalim yemechovali mechova. The Gemara doesn't even pretend to affirm that an event happened on Tisha B'Av. It says, well, it's a day of mourning, so we just put them all together. So even the Mishnah is something that the Gemara does not take as historical fact. But that's okay. Well, take that as you wish. It just I mean, depends if, how much you invest if, in it. If, if you say that we're going to put all these things together, we can't mourn each time... But what that, I understand that, but then don't tell me as a matter of history, as a matter of fact, that such an event happened on a certain day. Right? It's a very different. I have no problem. Like Yori, this was a conversation I had with Yori Yan over a bunch of times when he was here over Yom HaShoah. And the objection is like, why do we need a separate holiday for Yom HaShoah when we have Tishba? I didn't say holiday. Day of commemoration specifically for Yom HaShoah. That's why we have Tishba. Right? That's why we have, you know, the keynote about the Crusades. That is the day where we remember all Jewish tragedies, group it all together. And there was a thinking like that. Right? But when people say, like, oh, this particular thing, the Warsaw Ghetto, it was either the uprising liquidation happened on Tisha B'Av. It didn't. It was a day off. Right? And I, I go through it systematically. And this is stuff that took maybe half hour of internet searching. This, by the way, is before Wikipedia. Right? Of searching, well, what happened on what days? And plugging it into HeapCal. And you can easily disprove. And my problem there was, when you lie about history in such a way, you're cheapening the events and you're cheapening history. Like you're saying, these events weren't significant enough, they must have happened on Tisha B'Av. And you're saying Tisha B'Av isn't important enough that we need to make it more important, more contemporary. Separate issue. Separate issue. But please, in your email to Rabbi J.J. Shafter, you're free to CC me on this too. Ask him about what do you do with biblical history? History. What do you do about other things that would really cut at the core of Jewish faith? That would be a wonderful question for him to answer. Including, incidentally, as uh, George um, hinted at earlier in the class, Rambam's own tradition of the history of, uh, whatchamacallit, the history of the, um, of the Mesorah, and why he goes from Dov HaMelch back to someone who entered from the time of Yoshua bin Nun, who, from a matter of pure history, wasn't really alive. 
or probably wasn't alive. All right? With that, have a wonderful, wonderful week. Hope to see you this Wednesday.